Hello and welcome to Strange Sound. This is episode 18 of Strange Sound. I'm Joe. Thanks for joining me. Here we are in uh, yet another exciting week of the COVID crisis and um, um, simultaneous uh, crisis in American policing and governance um, in other words, the ongoing dumpster fire of the Trump era, the year 2020 turning out to be uh, all that it's been promised, you know, the uh, worst year ever for a lot of people. Collectively, I think this may be, <laughs> this is well on the way to being the worst year ever. So give credit where credit is due. This year sucks. We all know it. Um, it's been, uh, quite a week. Yeah. Uh, another amazing week in the life of America. And, uh, just yesterday I'm recording this on July 4th, um, Independence Day. Just yesterday, the president did a big, um, rally in front of Mount Rushmore and there were flyovers and fireworks and he gave a very his usual sort of Steve Miller crap speech that he gave um, full of all kinds of dark inferences about um, anarchists and socialists and you know people trying to tear down our heritage and our traditions and all this real toxic stuff he's playing the Nixon 1968 card um, somewhat uh, strangely forgetting that Nixon was not president in 1968 when he was uh, playing that card and uh, I don't think it works as well if you're an incumbent because if you're describing a dysfunctional America that you think is going way wrong well you are president of the United States so what does that say about you? So you're kind of making the argument for removing yourself from office. Uh, but, you know, I mean, <laughs> you don't want to read too much into these speeches because it was probably written by Stephen Miller, and he is, without a doubt, the worst speech writer ever to reach his position in life, ever to write for a president, at least in living memory. I've heard a lot of presidential speeches in my life. Um, and he is the worst ever. Uh, I say this as someone who writes speeches, um, for a living part of my, uh, uh, living. And I, I do not consider myself a good enough writer to a skilled enough writer to write a speech for a president of the United States. <laughs> Even this one, but I, I will say uh, that just from my own perspective as someone who writes for a living, uh, 
Stephen Miller is a terrible writer. He's just terrible. And I just, uh, it, it just amazes me that he has risen to the level that he's re- risen to. I mean, that's just my, that's, that's a little hobby horse of mine. Com- completely beside the point of the actual event itself, which was obscene. Um, once again, you know, finding a locus of um, atrocity and um, of particular significance to the um, extermination of and the um, marginalization of indigenous people, um, just as choosing Tulsa was a way of saying to black people, you know, you belong in your place, you know, we're going to go there on Juneteenth and uh, around the anniversary of the worst, basically white on, on black rioting, killing pogrom, that took place um, some, I think it was 1919, was it, in Tulsa? Someone will correct me. Forgive me if I got that wrong. Pretty awful. Tulsa riot. And, you know, um, the Black Hills where they carved Mount Rushmore. Mount Rushmore carved by a racist. <laughs> carved by a clan sympathizer um, and, you know, depictions of the slave owner, George Washington, village destroyer, as we know, up here in upstate New York, village destroyer, George Washington, um, slave owner, Thomas Jefferson, and actually kind of the author of the um, indigenous removal policies that were later carried out by people like Andrew Jackson um, certainly envisioned an America a yeoman farmer um, republic that um, would be made way for by pushing Native Americans off of their land and which was uh, particularly followed through uh, with later on and and which was part of the impetus for um, the Louisiana Purchase. Um, you can hear a lot more about this elsewhere. I'm not. I am not an expert on this subject. I'm just sharing what little bits I've gleaned from other people's expertise. So, anyway, uh, Trump is an expert at. I guess the idea is just triggering people, just pissing people off. And just getting his uh, base to be sort of energized. For them right now, in the current status of his re-election campaign, I think they feel like this um, defense of Confederate and and sort of historic statues um, is like a strong point for them, that that's a winner for them in some way, because I don't know, they probably got some polling that says people don't want to see statues pulled down or whatever. Um, and that they're going to use that as a sort of cultural talisman that will help carry them over the finish line this November. I think they're badly miscalculating there, but we'll see. Um, but that's obviously the reason why he chose Mount Rushmore as a locus for his um, July 3rd speech, his July 4th weekend big extravaganza of his speech. And, uh, yeah, it's, it 
it's pretty disgusting. Um, and it's it's pretty typical. It's basically, I'm not going to say a dog whistle. It's more like a foghorn to all the uh, white supremacists out there. Uh, to foghorn leghorn, as it were. Here I am, Trump. Return me to office for another four years and I'll see to it that you get everything you want. Yeah, well, we'll see about that. Anyway, that wasn't really what I was going to talk about this week. Uh, Fact is, this week I was going to talk about me. (laughs) That's right, me. This week I was going to talk about Joe. And what am I going to talk about with regard to me? Well, um, I wanted to talk about, in past episodes I've talked about a little bit about... um, about the current um, policing crisis and race in America to a limited extent. Again, I'm not an expert. I'm just an observer. And I've mentioned, I think I mentioned in my first episode that, yes, I am a white cisgender male. Um, grew up in relatively privileged circumstances, middle class. Uh, sort of upper working class, middle class, something like that. I'm not sure how you describe it. In America, it's not very well defined, right? Everybody thinks they're middle class. Uh, That's what my parents thought they were when they were young. Um, But uh, I, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about what my experience has been and why that, how that differs from what the experience of people of color is in the United States. I think this is pretty obvious, but I just wanted to use this as an example because um, it's something that I'm I'm keenly aware of, and it's something that I think is is true of you know it's true of a broad spectrum of of people in the United States. Um, a lot of white people have had this experience, right? this type of experience. You know, my parents were from a kind of a working class background. My dad um, had an equivalency diploma, uh, never graduated high school. He just uh, earned his equivalency after World War II and started working um, just in more or less manual labor jobs and moved into sales jobs, that sort of thing. Um, we only ever really had one worker in the family in the, in the traditional sense of, you know, someone going out and being the breadwinner as they used to say, and that was my dad. Uh, he, he basically worked one job for maybe 35 years, um, moved around a little bit before that. Um, but during the years of my parents' uh, marriage, um, they had five children. I was number four. Um, five children between the years of, between the late 40s and the early 60s, let's say. Um, so it was an entire group of children uh, within the scope of, within the broad scope of the baby boom sort of every every stage of the baby boom was every base of it was covered by by the five of us and 
you know, we grew up in that sort of typical post-war white suburban family situation where dad got up every morning and went out to work and his salary was uh, paid for the house that we lived in, which was, you know, had a mortgage on it. Um, and we went to public schools um, and they were sort of suburban public schools. I mean, I spent the first few years of my life living in, in Utica, but it was um, North Utica. So it was kind of a suburban area. I went to one of the city schools, but it was, uh, it was a, it was more like a suburban school than it was like an inner city school. North Utica is and was back then uh, basically a suburb of, of the city. So uh went there. Then uh, my parents moved to New Hartford, which is, as I've described before, a rock-ribbed Republican town, or at least was back then. Um, they moved there mostly because of my mother's... Um, my mother was having some respiratory problems in North Utica. The air was really bad because um, it was kind of close to the city dump. They used to burn a lot of garbage back in those days. And there was also a greenhouse that had a smokestack um, that was um, not within spitting distance, but you know, within a mile of our house and the prevailing winds were such that my mother um, was having really bad problems. Um, I remember her wearing a face mask back when I was probably five, six years old. So we moved up onto a hill in New Hartford. Uh, again, New Hartford is the town where uh, Representative Claudia Tenney grew up. Uh, I went to high school with her briefly, as I've mentioned previously. Um, by the way, she is running for Congress once again. So if anyone doesn't remember Claudia Tenney's tenure um, during the first two years of the Trump administration, just Google Claudia Tenney and you'll find some very interesting stuff. Uh, she is running against our current representative, Anthony Brindisi. Um, so it's a rematch. Anyway, we moved to New Hartford. What was uh, What was my life like? It was... It was the typical, you know, white suburban life, right? I mean, I went from a poorly resourced school, a relatively poorly resourced school in the city of Utica, um, a school that no longer exists. It was called Horatio Seymour School, elementary school in North Utica. It was uh, poorly resourced uh, in the sense that they... You know, they didn't have a lot of money to work with. I mean, <laughs> I remember the lunchroom being basically bare. You could buy um, subsidized milk for like two cents and uh, a carton of milk um, at lunchtime. And everybody brought their lunch. They didn't serve lunch, right? When we moved to New Hartford, I was in the third grade. It was kind of astonishing to me because, I mean, this was, you know, a whiter town than the one that I was used to. And um, people had more money, but 
there was a subsidized lunch program. I mean, for 30 cents, you could have a hot lunch every day. Um, there were buses running, you know, the buses took you to school back in North Utica. We used to walk to school about a mile, um, all the way up the main drag, um, walk back. Um, so it was much, much better resourced, but again, uh, privileged in the sense that my father benefited from FHA loans that were available to him because he was a white guy, right? Uh, VA benefits that were available to him because he was a white guy. Um, able to get the types of jobs that he was able to get, uh, partly because he was a white guy. And I don't want to overstate this, but it was in an era, in the post-war era, when if you were a white guy and you were able to work pretty hard, um, you could support a family, um, buy a home on a single income and actually make ends meet and build up equity in your home, right, over the course of years um, so that... You know, by the time I was a teenager, you know, my parents had a pretty comfortable life on one income. My mother was a, was a homemaker. Um, she did a lot of volunteer work. She did she she worked her butt off, really. But she just she she had a couple of part time jobs here and there, but didn't really work outside of the home very much. It was mostly just for a little extra spending money or whatever. Um, in, in the later years, but she was home most of the time and it was one income and they were living relatively comf- comfortably. It was a comfortable home again, brought about through the types of advantages you have when you were a white person. My, my father worked in a company of all white people <laughs> Um, he worked with contractors, all of whom were white. The house built in the white suburb of New Hartford was, was built, um, with the assistance of, uh, all of his contractor friends, um, who, you know, a lot of them donated their labor because, uh, you know, they all worked together. Dad would throw them work, you know, they would bring customers, that sort of thing. It was... It was a kind of a mutual exchange type thing. But again, it's the sort of thing that, that white people could benefit from, right? Because they they have a network and they have the law on their side. And they have the option to live in whatever neighborhood they can afford to buy into. And uh, they have more doors open to them as far as employment goes. So my father, you know, without a high school diploma, just an equivalency diploma, was able to do quite well for himself, relatively speaking, until like the 1980s, uh, when he was coming close to retirement, then he started having some troubles. But me, I, uh, you know, (laughs) compared to any person of color living in uh, the city of Utica, uh, my life in... New Hartford as a 
pre-teenager, teenager. It was a charmed life. Um, what run-ins I had with the law were more or less um, uh, little brushes here and there, but nothing, nothing like an arrest because they weren't really paying attention to people like me. Sometimes we'd have a cat and mouse game with the local cops or whatever, but it was mostly just for entertainment uh, or a little bit of like teenage melodrama. Um, the sort of thing that could get, you know, a black person killed or thrown into jail or, you know, whatever, beat up just a few miles down the road because of who we were and what we looked like. Uh, you know, we got a free pass, right? And I guess what I'm saying is that my opportunities in life, like so many white people um, of the sort of upper working class, uh, middle class, growing up in the time that I was growing up, I could fuck up and I'd be fine. As long as I didn't fuck up too bad. So... (laughs) So, you know, you get a lot of mulligans when you're white. That's all I can say. So, you know, I mean, I went through high school and I didn't really have any sort of career focus or any idea what I was going to do when I got out of high school. I had a kind of a, I mean, just because of my orientation, more or less um, politically and, and in terms of just my view of the world, I just always felt like, well, the world's probably going to blow up before I do anything for a living, so who cares? Um, so I didn't really, you know, think about what my career was going to be once I left high school. And then I, I sort of wandered into college and I sort of meandered through basic, you know, courses and programs. <laughs> I didn't have a major for the first couple of years. And then I dropped out and I went to... I actually went to a state school for a while. Um, then I worked as a musician for about 10 years. And again, that was that was pretty hand-to-mouth, but I always had a net under me. I always had a net under me. So, you know, you're talking about somebody who had every opportunity, even as just the son of a guy who worked at a flooring store, Right. A guy who sold paint and flooring and did measurements for, you know, um, linoleum installs, that sort of thing. I still had plenty of opportunity. I was academically a a good student, but didn't, you know, wasn't really very focused. So I could get into a decent college, but I didn't really do anything with it, right? And I didn't need to because I'm white. Largely, and because of the timing, uh, in part because of the timing, because I was I was a boomer and I grew up at a certain time, and it was the option to sort of meander was available to me, right? So, um, yeah, I mean, I spent most of my twenties into my thirties. Um, well, I spent my twenties as a musician. Um, on a very low level, um, nothing even approaching, you know, the big time, just playing in wedding bands, show bands, uh, party bands, that sort of thing. 
some of my own projects and God knows I worked with my brother a little bit here and there. Um, that's a whole other story, but, um, ended up going back to college, got a degree and, uh, couldn't really do very much with it until I landed a job as a, uh, advertising writer. And that was mostly because of an introduction, um, by a family member. Now it was the type of job where, you know, an introduction gets you so far, right? It gets, it may get you in the door, but you have to be able to do the job in order to stay in the room. Um, it's one of those kind of sink or swim situations. Uh, it was a small agency and I managed to turn that into, um, something that resembled a career, (laughs) but see, the thing is, again, it's because I'm a white dude, right? I have the connections. I have the network of people who sort of go to bat for you. You know, I had, um, parents who were well off enough to be able to catch me if I fell. I had friends and relatives who could speak up for me and doors were opened for me. Um, even though I was not an ambitious person and even though I didn't really work very hard to get to where I was, I managed to land in a relatively comfortable place. And that's mostly a product of the fact that I am a white person. And if I were a person of color, I would not have had the same opportunities. If I were a person of color and I made decisions that would be considered unwise by most, which I definitely did make, I would not be able to recover from those decisions. I would not have had the same network. I wouldn't have had the same set of options. It would have resulted in a lot more hardship. And and, and make no mistake, I had some rough years in terms of trying to scrape together a living, right? But it's not of the same category as most people on the bottom of the income ladder experience as rough times, right? When you're really, you know, worried about being out in the street. I was never at a point where I was worried about being thrown out into the street because I always had a place to go home to. Through my 20s and into my 30s, I had a place to go. I had the support of my family. It's because they had the resources to be able to support me. Because they were white. And because they were middle class. And because they had that foundation and they came up when they came up. In the post-war years. When a single wage earner could support a family of seven. Relatively easily and have some money left over. Right. And so I had opportunities, you know, if, if I had been an ambitious person, um, I might've been able to do a lot more with my opportunities. But even as somebody who had zero ambition and zero vision, as far as like what I wanted to do for a living, and I'm not ashamed of that, that's fine. It's just not someplace that I wanted to go. But if I if I had been a tremendously ambitious person or a very career focused person, yeah, I would have had, you know, doors swinging open for me, I'm sure. But as such, 
you know, without the ambition, without the sort of career focus, I still landed in a comfortable place because of who and what I am. Not because of any any particular effort on my part. Though I did, you know, I did have to work at it a little bit. But <laughs> seriously, if you're a person of color, you're in a situation similar to what I was in, you could work your butt off and it wouldn't make any goddamn difference. Because those doors would not open for you. They would not open for you. If you don't have the connections, I mean, this is a general statement. I'm sure there are individuals for whom something similar would happen that happened with me. But generally speaking, it's less common, far less common for people of color to have the kinds of connections that would help them out in, in a case like what I had, um, in a situation like the one that I was facing as a younger person. And that's, you know, look, I, what's my point? My point is, if you want to understand um, race in America, part of what you need to understand is what the white experience is, the white working class experience is, and, and what advantages people like me have that people of color do not have and have not had um, over the decades in the United States when um, working people did relatively well. The period from the end of the Great Depression, World War II, through the 1960s and 70s. And with a little bit of tearing on after that, right? So, you know, I don't ordinarily do this, but I wanted to make some recommendations to my white friends out there. <laughs> if you're a person of color listening to this, this, you know, I'm not I'm not saying this for your benefit. You don't need this, right? But uh I'm going to make some suggestions for my white listeners out there, people who uh, maybe are similarly situated to me. There are a lot of books you can read. Um, that may help you begin to grasp what black people and people of color in this country have been facing over the last, you know, 300, 400 years in America, but particularly the last 150 years. Um, the ones that I can recommend most heartily, the ones that have uh, really sort of struck me between the eyes over the last few years um, were uh, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow um, was one of them, which is just uh, an amazing piece of work that goes through the entire legal um, law enforcement infrastructure um, that just keeps black people down. Um, and um, it, it's just, it's an amazingly detailed piece of work. I heartily recommend reading that. Okay, so my second recommendation for white people is a book by Douglas A. Blackman um, named Slavery by Another Name. Um, this is about um, the peonage system that, existed between the Civil War and the Second World War in particular, um, basically the criminalization of black life uh, 
and how um, black people were would be arrested and then had their labor sort of leased out um, by their captors um, <laughs> for profit. Um, it's something that's uh, has an analog today. I mean, really, if you look at our prison, our sort of for-profit prison system, and even our sort of public, publicly owned prison system, you see something very similar. I mean, people's labor is forced. The 13th Amendment says that, you know, prisoners are basically slaves. So they make use of their labor. It's free labor. Um, anyway, Slavery by Another Name by Douglas A. Blackman. Uh, it, it is just a, it's, it's an amazing piece of work. And I heartily recommend that as well. The third, and I will stop with this one, is it's a book by Richard Rothstein entitled The Color of Law, A Forgotten History of How Our Government Segregated America. And it tells the story of the legislative and legal architecture that shut black people out of um, opportunities for housing um, and basically segregated America through a system of, you know, um, restrictive covenants, um, denying FHA loans, denying VA loans, um, denying all the advantages that people like my, my parents had um, in choosing a home wherever they wanted to to uh, live. Um, this is the story of redlining. And uh, Rothstein goes through it in great detail. It's, it's a really, really interesting work. I heard him interviewed on, I think, Fresh Air and a couple other shows and, and just had to read this book. And, and I wasn't disappointed at all. It was... It's an amazing piece of work. So uh, I recommend those those three as kind of like a starting point um, just to get some idea of what the, you know, again, I'm talking to white people. <laughs> if you want to begin to understand what the story of race in America is, Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, Douglas Blackman's Slavery by Another Name, and Richard Rothstein's The Color of Law those are uh, some very readable, very uh, edifying works that uh, will give you a good starting point. So white people, go to your library um, and find those and uh, read them. They're free. <laughs> you can get it for free. If you can't find it, let me know. I'll, uh, I'll lend you my copy. No problem. Anyway, that's all I have to say about that. I'd like to hear what you have to say. If you're listening to this, uh, oh, that sounds like one of Matt's songs. If you're listening to this, we'll assume I'm dead, that the situation's septic. Goes on from there. Um, yeah, if you want to put a word in here, uh, go to anchor.fm slash strange sound and leave a voicemail. There's a facility for doing that there. Um, you can also contact me via Twitter um, at Strange Sound Pod. Um, if you go to big greennet and click on the podcast tab, you'll see the link to the um, anchor site. 
and there's um, there are links to our, like our Facebook page, um, our Twitter feed, and so on. So I'm easy to get in touch with. By all means, get in touch with me. Let me know what you think. If uh, you take issue with anything that I discuss here, I'd love to hear from you. Seriously, I'm not. <laughs> I'm not. Uh, you know, I'm not trying to pull a fast one. I really would like to know what people think of this. So, reach out, contact me. Um, let's make this a conversation. Uh, if you leave me a voicemail, um, and if it's something that's you know not too obscene, I'll play it on the. <laughs> I'll play it on this show <laughs> and I'll try to respond to it. Um, thanks for listening. This has been Strange Sound um, coming to you on a near weekly basis. And uh, I'm Joe. I'll see you next time. Take care.